is very, <laughs> it's a different kind of people. <laughs> well, that's great seeing you do this so I can learn about how it is to run a podcast. I, yeah. I've been curious, but there are a lot of little mechanics to it that I don't know anything about. Oh, yeah, Certainly so much. editing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a big thing where every episode I do, um, I'm learning new tricks. So, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Like just how different I see audio now than I did like two months ago. <laughs> just like wavelength, just an understanding of all those things. Interesting. Do you think you're becoming an audiophile? Just one of those people that really enjoys different equipment and recognizes the I don't the think nuances. it will go that far. Also because I'm not planning on making a profession out of it. My my brother-in-law is actually he's an, he's an audio engineer, so he's very into that. I would still not call him an audiophile. I'm not sure if he would appreciate that. Uh, but uh, he like he's just really, really proficient when it comes to understanding of all of that like he did all the the engineering in, in the background so all the signal processing so he understands all of that as well like the electrical engineering part but also just like the music production and like how, like what it actually means if if your wave goes like that like what it actually means if certain frequencies are higher and lower uh, and all those things and it's very it's very fascinating to to dive into this whole world because for me it's still a mystery for me really how we can transmit sound from one side of the world to the other over different mediums like the internet or telephone or whatever else it's uh it's it's really cool to see how that actually works how this whole processing in the background works like for example why I do real phone calls sometimes sound good but mostly sound so much worse than for example transmission over the internet like what do you actually cut away why are certain frequencies reduced uh and that's something i'm, I'm learning right now <laughs> it's really interesting oh really yeah i would love yeah. to know the answer to that yeah, i also I mean, wish i could recognize the differences more um like I, I have a record player and I know that there's supposed to be a difference between the physical sound and digital sound, but I never mm. have been able to identify it myself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a person to ask about that either. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's his own world. And I see like how, how long it took him. And it's not only understanding, it's really training like the the hearing training, the audio training he's done for years, like every day, like I think it was half an hour or one hour, kind of just like training his ear and his understanding uh, of, of, of tones, like especially for music production, just so he can, can hear different things uh, and, and process them differently that I just can't. Like, for example, if someone plays an accord, just to hear the different, the different tones out of it. And all those things that play into it, like, uh, that's also very interesting. Like on the one hand side, it's this understanding of the data you see when you load something into your program. And the other thing is really the, how you process sound yourself and what you pick up. And I think that's, uh, that's the hardest challenge actually with the, with the processing, with the post-production of the podcast, because when I listen to a professional podcast and I'm like, Hmm, that's a cool sound. I would like my voice the voice of my guest sound the same way as i am experiencing this other podcast 
which screws ha- do I have to to turn to get us there? Because there what are, screws are available so to you? many. Like honestly, when I go and like I, I use Adobe, that's like a hundred different things I can do. Like probably more than a hundred. And I'm right now playing with let's say five, six different tools of this 100 tools I could use. And it is mind-blowing how much you can do with those six alone. And uh, every week or every other week, I'm trying, I'm, I'm watching YouTube videos. Okay, okay. How, how do I remove that problem? How do I, like I hear a bit of an echo here. How do I remove that? Or there's white noise in the background, like just because the microphone is not that great and it picks up some frequency. How do you remove that? Or clicking in the background. Like last time I I also had this pen and I would just do this. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a different pen actually. It was a pen where it could like shift and you would have this small clicking waves in, in the background. And I would hear it and I was like, hmm. Do I have to cut them out like one by one now whenever I wasn't talking? Or is there actually a way to, to filter it out over this whole episode? And uh, it's, it's fascinating to see all that. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting that like these tools that are used by professionals, like you can also access and become proficient in yourself. Yeah, so there is this... It's, it's one of the things I find so fascinating about software and the whole software revolution. I would say we have access to the exact same tools than billionaires have as well. There's just no better software for them. There are just no better tools. Like, okay, maybe uh, Dr. Dre or Timbaland are going to have headphones that cost 15,000 and a microphone that costs 20,000. But the difference between your headphones and their headphones for recording a podcast, for example, is minimal. It's not going to make that much of a difference. And for the microphone, it's not going to make a lot of difference as well because you can process it afterwards. But when it comes to software, they use Adobe. They might use a lot of other plugins and a lot of other things as well, but uh, all the professionals out there use more or less the same tools and they're available to everyone. And that's really cool. It's very... Um, democratic. Know, democratic, yeah. <laughs> Democratizing like the everything. Uh, but it's it's definitely a really, really cool thing to see because that just wasn't possible I don't know, a couple hundred years ago or just a hundred years ago. There was just a world of a difference between what money could buy you in terms of your abilities. Also, I had only known Adobe as a photo video editing software, so I wasn't aware that you could edit sounds with it. But now I'm wondering if there's there's relationships between sound and photos because in photos they also kind of distill things into the layers of color and, um, I don't know, uh, texture. And perhaps yeah. sound can also be thought of that way. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Possibly, but I can tell you that so far I have processed my podcasts in Photoshop, eh, in Photoshop, in uh, Premiere Pro, so the video editing, uh, because it's a video podcast, so I'm still thinking about doing shorts, 
So I'm, uh-huh. and I was already familiar with Premiere. So that was the first thing to start. And you can do a lot with Premiere. But recently I got, uh, I, I thought about maybe, maybe using, uh, is it Audible or is it Audacity? I don't remember now. <laughs> what, what oh, I think Audacity is a software audition. that I've heard of. Oh, audition. audition. So Adobe is audition. Uh, so cool. because it, it needlessly integrates with with Premiere, so I'm actually thinking of integrating that maybe into my workflow. It's not necessary right now because, as I told you, my the depth of all the tools I'm using is not that as pronounced. So I'm I'm very well equipped with uh, with the things I have so far. But maybe in the future I'm gonna switch to the actual audio processing. Platform. But yeah, so definitely if you want to start or if when, when you're starting, let me know. I can I can uh, try to walk you through everything I've learned so far. <laughs> might be helpful. Ah, that would be very kind to <laughs> sure. get to skip some of the difficult challenges that you've had to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh no. I was just gonna say on a tangent, one tool that I've learned how to use a bit is um, TikTok editing because oh, really? I've just been making random shorts and they have really incredible software that's for your phone. Whoa. Maybe not at the level of what you're doing, but I'm so impressed by what uh, what video editing is available to someone who's just trying to make amateur TikToks. Nice. Like what? Like what does your process look like? Um, well, I use TikTok and CapCut, which is a popular app. It's only on app as far as I know. I don't even think they have a desktop application. Um, and it, they have a lot of pre-made templates that makes it easy for someone who's mm. just trying to make something that's uploading to a popular like Instagram or TikTok. But it's also that they really let you layer things as well. So like for sound, you can separate things into different sound channels and then modulate it in any way you want. So mm. you can speed things up. But oof, there's even this like ability for you to like curve the sound or speed of things where it's like faster at first and then slower and then fast again and you can kind of draw the wave of how you want it to be and that's Uh, kind of the fun part of editing on your phone is that you can use your fingers to kind of draw the pattern that you'd like and that uh, i'd never seen before and i'm like well i'm just editing a video of me eating or something really basic (laughs) so it's just funny that i'm like the content is so simple or silly and the tools for it are quite advanced ah okay i see what you mean yeah that's yeah i mean in in the end you would always use the same thing right so even if you if you would create the craziest documentary um you worked a year on um you in the in the end, like most of the things you're doing, cutting, lighting, uh, all those things are still kind of the same, uh, or at least the same toolkit you would use to a lot of to a lot of degrees. Yeah, that's interesting. How how long have you been making TikTok videos? Um, maybe a few months, but they're not nothing to be proud of. It's just that I have spent so much time taking pictures or recording things that I might as well make a little scrapbook for myself. So I I really will just put together the things I did over a period of time so that I can look back and remember that it was a, a fun week. Oh, that's cool. So just every day, every other day. Are you making like a video every day or what is that rhythm? 
Um, it's really when I'm bored. Like if I'm waiting at an airport, I'll make like five because they're they're quite simple. Some of them are very low fidelity. And what's interesting is the ones that I put more effort into get no views because it really does seem like the algorithm is trying to pick up on trends. So it wants you to be using the sounds that other people are using or the the templates or filters. So that was very interesting to learn. I put together like a really stupid photo collage based on things that the algorithm likes. That makes no sense. And I got many views. And then I put together this, um, you know, my own scrapbook type video of here's what I did over the last week, which I spent maybe like an hour editing. Um, and I don't think anyone looked at that. So it's interesting how it, it picks it up. But I do like TikTok for the reason that you could have no name or no recognition and the way their for you page works, people just kind of wander onto it. Like it's just a suggestion for them. Mm. Like how do you mean when you said like the photo collage was um, more aligned with uh, what the algorithm likes, like what other people are doing? How do you, how did you assess that? Ah, I used one of the like songs that was popular Oh, at wow. the time as a background song. Oh, that's but, interesting. Yeah, I would say that seems to work very well uh, as far as just seeing what is trending and then putting that even in the background. I see people use videos with those songs, but they mute them so that the algorithm picks it up, but they're not even actually using it. Uh, okay. Algorithm hacking 101. It's like uh, SEO in the early days when they would put miles and miles of text in the same color as their background <laughs> of their web page, just so the algorithm would pick it up. <laughs> I do think that there are things like that. Like the, there's still a lot of opportunity to hack the algorithm within TikTok. It's kind of the <laughs> wild west, I'm sure. Nice. I mean, that makes everything so exciting. As you said, you don't need to have a huge audience to get views. And it's... Uh, it's also a form of democratizing, right? Yeah, yeah I really, th I really like the idea of TikTok because it's so low effort or low fidelity, but it's mm. very genuine. Sometimes I, I find that there are just certain videos where people are expressing an idea or story that's very interesting, but they don't have to do a lot of production for it. I kind of wonder if that's what YouTube was like in the 2000s, where no one had fancy equipment, so they were just making home videos. Yeah. I mean, might be. I've never, especially not back then, not been a follower of uh, PewDiePie. PewDiePie? Uh, yeah. Like, you know, the, he, he used to be the biggest YouTuber. I don't know if you, if you know him. He's this. Uh, Is he a video game person? Yeah, exactly. He's, I think he's Swedish. I have heard of him. Country. I think I read, I think in the last few years, there was some drama around him, some scandal. Certainly. And that's when I became aware of him. <laughs> I'm sure there were many scandals, but he used to be the number one YouTuber for several years. And when you look at his videos still, they are very trashy. I mean, now it's like <laughs> pop culture trashy, but like his beginning videos was just him screaming to a camera. I mean, he's, <laughs> he seems to be a nice guy, uh, but it's very low effort. Uh, very homemade videos without much of a post-production, which I like. It's more authentic, right. right? 
And somehow that really appeals to the audience that maybe even more than, you know, good filming or production or equipment can do is something that connects to people. Yeah. I long term, the content that resonates with me the most and people actually follow are authentic people who do not try to optimize based on the trends that are happening. Uh, they might jump on a trend that is that resonates with them, but then they kind of stick with that and just move it forward and push through um, against the tides of trends. And, I imagine uh, that could be hard for creators, though, if they're trying to make their entire living off of um, making videos or something. I, I'm not sure. If it's easy to resist being trendy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely hard. The way I see it is you're playing a different game, right? If you're playing the game of always being the most trendiest person and always jumping on the next trend and anticipating it so you have an edge, you're very easily replaceable because a lot of people are playing that game. However... Being authentic and trying to bring the best sides out, think of how you can attract people with your authenticity, with things you actually feel comfortable with doing that are you, with creativity around things you prefer that are aligned with your ethos and the things you value. You might not get the initial kick out of being on the trend wave. But I think it's a healthier way of growing organically and capturing people that stay with you. And I also think, yes, more sustainable. And also, I think a lot of people who just follow a trend, like it's impossible to capture them because you just can't follow every trend, which means people will not, like talking about living from something, it's not enough that people watch your content, right? Like most of the money is still made outside of actually content. Content just brings you to advertisement or brings you to affiliate marketing or brings you to see what else that person is doing and then you support them over Patreon and then you support them over uh, whatever donations or buying their products that they're offering on the site, their masterclasses and their tutorials and plugins. But if it's just for trend you're probably not really interested in that so much uh, but if you actually resonate with that person because it's authentic at least that's my understanding then you're much more willing to support that that person can keep on going and producing yeah that's so true that i think most of the time the content is not what generates revenue but rather it's advertising or yeah, selling a class. Yeah, I mean, I. So I'm new in this, right? Like right now, we're recording episode number nine. In general, I have a bit of an aversion against this forced kind of advertising in content, like the the typical TV advertisement. You build your movie and your your show in a way that the advertisement hits right had a cliffhanger (laughs) and I don't really like that because I don't want to force people to do advertisement so for the moment 
I'm not planning on doing those kind of monetizations where you have just clips in the middle of it. Self-made ones or just at networks and platforms. Um, but uh, in the future, like a lot of podcasts that I like are maybe doing in the beginning where they promote some products. Uh, so people who don't want to listen to it can just jump over that. Or yeah. Boy, do I like Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens. <laughs> That's a classic one, yeah. Um, or I don't do any advertisement and just enjoy the podcast as it is, enjoy it as a, as a project that I enjoy working on and not think about monetization. But uh, I'm pretty sure I'm, this is just the start of my journey to create things, not just digital creation, but maybe like bigger projects. And uh, then it's always great to have people that enjoy you and like you and uh, are willing to support you. And uh, maybe that's a form how I could reach uh, escape velocity and just be myself and create stuff. So I think there's this, this way as well. But obviously it requires not just being a creator. Well, if you want to sell me a class on making a podcast, I will take it. <laughs> Let's see about that. Uh, but you can definitely you can definitely have one-on-one sessions for free. <laughs> right on. One thing I really like when I'm listening to podcasts is that when there's a commercial, um, it's stitched into the podcast itself so I can just skip ahead but I'm sure that will be changed in the future because I don't think advertisers are happy with it. You mean that the podcast audio includes it in the middle or do you mean yeah. it just starts as its own clip and you can jump over it? Um, I use Apple Podcasts and mm -hmm. it's in the same clip. Okay. So I just click the like skip 30 seconds button. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff happening regarding that. Uh, I don't know if you if you listen to Joe Rogan. Not recently. It's, okay, like he just a couple of weeks ago, for me at least, uh, started advertisement. I think it was part of his contract when they acquired his license, and uh, it's the first time he's doing advertisement. And he does the form of advertisement where there's just pre-recorded clips, and they just start in the middle of it sometimes two or three, one after the other. You can still, it's an extra clip, so you can just drag to the, to the end of the clip automatically and you're not getting punished for that. Uh, but it is placed based on what I understand, the algorithm. So it's not placed on uh, within the audio file itself. However, I've seen one version of a podcast host, actually, I think it's called Red Circle or something like that. I was uh, considering at some point uh, using that as my podcast platform where you from there distribute it to Spotify and Apple podcast. Uh, however, it's, it revolves around their ad network. And as I said, I'm not planning on using these kind of advertisements and they actually let you place advertisement within your audio audio file, but you can edit and re-edit that for the, as long as you want. So if half a year from now this is not an advertisement anymore that you want to have in your podcast episodes you can just 
remove it. Or if you think the timing isn't right, you can just place it somewhere else. And I think it also stays maybe within the audio file. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, you can just jump over that as well. I see. But uh, do they recheck how you've edited it so that it still maintains what they're looking for? I'm sure, yeah. I think it's all automatically how many people then actually listen to it. I think they factor all of that in. Yeah, I would love to see the statistics on monetization with podcasts and if audio ads are growing. I, I think... I think they are, but is it growing at the rate of podcasts? The thing is, podcasts are in decline, actually. I think the the consumption of it is still increasing, but podcasts themselves are on decline. Uh, I saw recently the stats that in the first month of 2020, that was the peak of all new podcasts being launched. Start of 2021 to 2020, they saw an 80% decline in new podcasts being launched. And from 2021 to the first month of 2022, so where we're in right now, they've seen another 80% drop. So compared to the peak in 2020, we're very far down. I think we just got over-digitalized since the pandemic and now people want to touch some grass or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the interesting thing there is that in the first month of 2020, apart from China, no one was affected by the pandemic yet. Right. So that was even pre pandemic for most countries. So that was actually not what caused it. But yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely, uh, you get easily hyped like 2020, I think was the year when uh, when Spotify acquired Joe Rogan. So that was probably the height of the hype of podcasts. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of things have changed since. It's not the newest thing on the block anymore. No, but podcasts really are, it's just talk radio, which has been around forever. Yeah. Independent networks and productions. I like it. it, it's, it's really cool to put stuff out there. I really enjoy podcasts. I, I really enjoy just listening. It feels like you're in conversation with someone. Yeah, right. What's your, what's like your favorite you know, podcast? Oh, I mostly listen to The Journal by The Wall Street Journal, which is most, it's like contained 15 to 20 minute news stories. But I think the stories that they talk about are usually pretty interesting, um, usually related around like business and finance what's the last one you did really captured you um well related also from the wall street journals there's the bad bets podcast and they covered uh like a six or seven part series on trevor milton and the nicola company that does i just i think that this last year we've seen so many that like so many companies fall that are inherently, in my opinion, scams. You know, like, you know, yeah. we saw the sentencing for Theranos, uh, the Theranos founder. And yeah. I don't know exactly how I feel about it, but it's very evocative in that during when the economy was doing well, there were so many companies that were coming up and becoming bigger than big. Yeah. Um, for Nikola, for example, I think it was 
valued higher than GM and Ford. Those are electric trucks, right? Yeah, they they had claimed to make hydrogen powered trucks. Hydrogen powered trucks. I remember it only vaguely. Yeah, which could have been very exciting, but they yeah. actually never had a working product ever, um, huh. and were able to go. Uh, I think they were able to IPO via SPAC. What does that mean? Um, it was something that became popular during the pandemic. Like it, it's always, it's been around for a while, but it wasn't a popular thing to do. But it's a a fast track to becoming a public company that mm-hmm. private companies can basically, instead of going through the IPO process, which requires a lot of underwriting and due diligence and yeah. basically legal financial stuff they can instead go merge with an existing company that is already public and then become a public company as a result. Uh. So what investors or people who started uh, started doing were starting holding companies that had no real product and no plans to start something. And then the those investment groups would go out and try to find a private company that had a lot of viability, so a a strong trajectory for growth. And then they would, that holding company would approach the private company and try to merge with them and then make that private company public. Uh, That's the, there were like hundreds that happened between 2020 to 2022. Um, And before that, maybe like a couple dozen had happened ever. So it was kind of that hot thing to do, but um, <laughs> some turned out well and others didn't. Uh, like probably the most well-known SPAC company is DraftKings. DraftKings? They do like, in the U.S., it's like big for a lot of legislation passed a few years ago that allowed for sports betting. So uh. then DraftKings capitalized on that and um, kind of facilitated the gambling um Mm -hmm. it's only legal in a handful of states but it's already so prominent and lucrative that i think they are very involved in lobbying to make it available in more states i gotcha and but they did not turn out to be a scam they were actually a success story of yes DraftKings. it seems to be doing really well nice okay but nicola nicola not so much but yeah if you're interested in those types of scam stories i think the bad bets podcast bad it just bets. makes me feel some sort of way i guess as someone who maybe wants to be involved in creation or entrepreneurship one day it's i think there are a couple messages to take from it maybe yeah. that um maybe it's important to trust the right people because these were well reg- like these founders were well regarded but they had found you know they had found their reckoning when they became unraveled i think when i think disgruntled employees came out to speak against it or um but also i mean it was crazy that like literally anything could get funded um, yes when the economy was doing well that it's hard to pick out what's genuine and what's not which one surprised you the most i mean like now in the aftermath which one is really puzzling to you of all those camps that happened in the last couple of years. Maybe FTX. Yeah. Why? Um, I guess from what I understand about it, that they are required to do 
accounting of their volatility or what risks that they're taking and for them to not know and to only find out supposedly within the month of FTX crashing just seems so implausible. So like whose fault is that? I mean, were they not, not being regulated enough? I, I would say it's obvious that they were not regulated enough. Uh, however, the way regulation works is usually in the aftermath, right? I think the, or the aftermath, it's just, there's a time lag. So I think the, the general idea behind it is the state promises you that they will catch you for any fraudulent behavior and they rely on you that you actually playing a long-term game and thus will not abuse the leeway you get over this one two year period before the auditing and everything regulatory really hits you but uh, sometimes people are so crazy that they don't care about all those things and just ignore it completely. But in the end, you will go bust. Like there are very, very few companies, especially new companies that manage to stay out of the, of the public eye when they do large scale fraud. So I would say the, the system in that way works as far as I understand not being an expert in it the problem like where I feel like the system is failing is with all the big institutional companies like uh, the the real big ones who just know to play the game differently uh, but like all the new ones end up bust at some point it's always surprising how long they were able to keep going but you have to keep in mind that all those regulations just take a while I mean in Theranos case it was different right because the medical field is just highly regulated that before you are actually allowed to do anything, you need a license, you need an audit, you need certain kinds of things. But uh, with financial stuff, especially when it's in a space that is almost completely unregulated, where everyone's just jumping on a hype train, where everyone's just into gold rush, there's also not that much push for regulation. It's more like on newspapers that someone is trying to profile themselves as being the tough guy who's gonna regulate. But in the end, in the US, nothing has happened. And chances are that in 2023, we're still not gonna see any big regulations. And I'm not saying that that's either good or bad, but uh, that's, that's something to keep in mind whenever things like that happen. Like FTX was launched in 2019, so it wasn't even life for three years that's a very short time you can and apparently you can do a lot of damage in such a short time as well i think the the reason it's most surprising to me and this is silly but it's kind of a heuristic is that they like own or they were able to rename an entire football stadium in like yeah. miami they were and that just I mean, seems to me so legitimate and that their whole reputation was, you know, the one they had that they were working with government regulators and frequently in Washington um, advising lobbyists in Congress and such. But I mean, 
Sam Bankman Fried or FTX, I don't know which one it was, was the biggest donor or the second biggest donor of the Democratic Party in the 2020 elections. Oh. Like, you really have to let that sink in. Like, he probably met tons of Democrats during that time. Well, he also and, donated to Republicans as well. I don't think he was strictly on the Democratic side. Really? Well, that I didn't know. I'll have to fact check it, but I heard that on a <laughs> podcast somewhere. Ah, okay. I mean, I'm, I believe that. I mean, you don't want to... You don't want to draw the attention of either side, right? Best option or the bet, your best bets are to bet on both. So both are happy. Uh, and I mean, it's the, the thing is that that's totally legal, right? Uh, it's totally legal to finance politics. All the big players are doing it. The stadium is wild. The stadium is really that was that was a crazy marketing gag. Renaming the stadium, getting Tom Brady as one of your biggest uh, influencers, as your biggest brand ambassadors. That was huge. I think it was a big couple of others, sports people and music people as well. Yeah, they had a Super Bowl commercial. Oh, really? Didn't even see that one yet. Yeah, it has the Curb Your Enthusiasm person. I can't remember his name. Larry David? Yeah. And he's Larry like, David. I don't trust it, which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, nice. Okay, so FTX, you mentioned Nicola, you mentioned Theranos. Are there any other ones? I mean, I've probably those are the three big ones of the last four years. Any yeah, are there any are... other notable ones? I mean, I'm sure they're happening every day and we're just not paying attention to it. Yeah. I mean, there was that one girl. I only know because my my sisters mentioned the Netflix show Inventing Anna. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's I watched that show. Huge. Yeah, you watched it? Yeah, it was fun. Okay, so for everyone who doesn't know, um, maybe you can give a quick overview. Oh, yeah. It's about a, a New York socialite um, who her actual name is Anna Sorokin. And she, when she arrived to New York, created a false identity as a German heiress to a lot of money um, and was able to weave her way into different New York social circles and also get funding for a startup that she had wanted to create for, I think, an arts-related type organization. And she was very well connected to the point where she was really rubbing shoulders with well-known people. I think she was recently on Paris Hilton's podcast, for example, and they were talking about how they had met at some point or another. <laughs> she had really probably met like, you know, most well-known people. Um, and the funny thing is she had kind of, many people realized that she had been, she had tricked them later, but very few actually ended up coming out because they were embarrassed by it. Like they at some point realized that she was a fraud, but they had already made those introductions into their circles or they had not really wanted to admit that she, you know, that they had been fooled by her. So for a long time, 
it was quiet. And then it wasn't until I think one of her close friends had revealed, uh, you know, had, um, well, it's a couple things. She was thrown in jail. There was a very interesting article written about her and her entire story. And then her friends had started coming and revealing things, but she had gotten away with it for, I think, several years. And now she actually has kind of a different type of following after the show where she's pretty open about the fraud that she had committed and she's just owning it and selling art. And um, she would kind of do like live streams and stuff from jail before getting deported. Oh, wow. So they're going to deport her? I'm not sure anymore. For a while they were. She's Russian though, right? Yes. So she's actually originally Russian and she had kind of cultivated a German accent. But what the actress had done was she had studied both Russian and German accents to try to do a combination one, which is why it sounds very weird. (laughs) Do you think it ends up for her net positive? I think she's really famous. I follow her on Instagram. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she has like a really, you know, because she's embraced this identity, she's quite cheeky about it. So you would say it was... It actually worked out for her. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I don't know what the reality is, but the way the show portrays her is she's very capable and smart. And maybe it's unfortunate that she wasn't born into means. I think the reality is that she came from um, a very modest family. Yeah. But I th- I think given if, if she was given the opportunity, I think she'd do really well. That's kind of what the show made me think is, why don't you just give her that $40 million loan and see what what happens? I think she could actually get a good return. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, let's see. What is she now? End of 30s? Mid 30s? It's probably not even that old, right? No, I don't think she's very old. Yeah, so she's she probably has a lot of things up her sleeve. <laughs> I, do, I do think it speaks to how, you know, social media or current modern day is kind of amoral. I don't think people really care whether or not she said she is what she said she was. I think people are just more interested in the story. Does that make you unease? Um, it makes me think that most of life is like watching television and most people I meet are NPCs. But I would say I, oh, <laughs> that wow. is a dark view. <laughs> Ooh. Elaborate. I, I just find that the, I don't know when it happened, but the moment our world became so digital, it's, I don't know if it's my own experience and other, or other people's as well, but there is this blending of what is real and what is false and what is just a story and what is the reality. Because even when we watch the news, it feels very sensational. Yeah. And how can I trust any particular news source and how do I parse what is actually happening? And I think that relates to social stories as well of like people want to live their lives for the plot and they want to, um, have like a, a presence online and in the existing world, and you know what is the difference between me and the my, like where I am right now versus the person I've cultivated on the internet? I, is it the same person, or do you create a different version of yourself every time you're inventing an online image? 
making a new profile and a bitmoji. Would you reduce it to just the person you cultivate in your online presence or whenever you're in a different situation? Pardon? Would you reduce it to just that we are creating people like new personas online? Or do you think it, we're creating new persona in all different situations we're in, regardless of offline or online? Ah, I think that in a natural way, like people have different, you know, their work selves or their home selves, school selves. But I think the frag there's that's a different thing than the fragmentation that exists from having an, a, a digital existence. Hmm, fragmentation. Like in Harry Potter, when Voldemort creates Horcruxes yeah. and there's like seven versions of him, I feel like that's what being on the internet is like. Wow. So it's more than just having different nuances in different social settings. It's really putting yourself apart. Perhaps. And maybe it means different things to different people. I think... At, you know, I, I'm a millennial Gen Z cusper somewhere in between. And there was a time in my life where I didn't use a, a cell phone. Um, but then for the Gen Z generation or younger, I think you get introduced to the digital world much earlier. So maybe your fe feeling of belonging into it might be greater. Yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. I think it's... Uh for both sides it's uh it's hard to imagine what life was before the smartphone and what life is when you only grew up with the smartphone yeah what do you think of all this is it just do you feel any resonance with it or is it totally foreign no uh i think a lot a lot of things we see make sense when we look at it through that lens of fragmentation like for example why are people so brutal in their communication on twitter for example like how is it possible that people there just have not only no filter but there are people who say things you would never hear in real life uh, almost as if they're just acting out a role. They, I don't know, either have somewhere very deep down or just trying to imitate uh, comedy sitcoms. The, the bad character in a the movie, they just usually don't exist or like one in a million. And now you have uh, on certain platforms, you just have so many people who are we're trolling or very gaslighting or <laughs> whatever else. There are it's, a lot of uh, villains on the internet. There are a lot of villains on the internet. Yeah, definitely. Who just foster dark thoughts and uh, negative emotions. So uh, that's definitely something that makes more sense looking at through your lens or that lens you just, you just described. And I think also my own feeling of 
of how I feel about different social media platforms. For me, it's primarily, let's say, LinkedIn and Instagram. I don't really use any other. But uh, that's different, two different worlds. I'm different in both of them. Very selective in both extremes. And when I compare it to my real life also, just very, very filtered and catalyzed. So uh, I always thought of it more as like out of my real person, I take and highlight different aspects. Uh, but maybe it really is a, a complete separate thing that evolves the more you use that platform. And it doesn't influence that much how you behave anywhere else. If it's really almost autonomous. Yeah, it's hard to say. Do, do you think your internet cell continues living its life when you're not on it? I mean, in the eyes of other people, definitely, right? Like, because you, like the content you put out there, the contributions you make are not restricted to the actual time you're online. Like, That's true. people start conversations with you. 24-7 if you post something out there or make a comment and you're just in that moment not participating. But then when you make a post or make a comment, it's echoing so long, as long as other people are interacting with it. So I guess that stays true, yeah. Because no, no one can have a conversation with you if you're not in the room. <laughs> they actually have to wait until you're there or you're on the phone. But uh, that has very little time lag. But uh, if on, on, on social media platforms, people can have a conversation with you and can have a conversation around you and pe other people can get into that conversation without you even be there. That is weird, yeah. That it is a very weird social phenomenon. Yeah, and I think maybe I, I, I'm just thinking about it now. I haven't really spoken about this before, but I guess I have always been kind of uncomfortable going on social media but I have both this pull to be more into social media for the connections with other people, but yeah. also this fear of being too involved in it and maybe losing myself into it. Maybe that mm. stems from this belief that I'm sharing with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I recently heard someone say that social media isn't negative because the algorithm just fosters whatever you engage with most. So some people will only have positive content and engage with positivity on the social media and other people just are in this very dark place and all they see is hatred and uh, things that annoy them and ignite them. And I find that to be true. Like my Instagram is super positive. Like. At times it wasn't, at times when I was following political web page, like pages and more, let's say, uh, like uh, politically active or more people who tried to profile themselves uh, 
it was it was a lot le- more aggressive, and it was a lot more upsetting. But these days, like most of my content that I, people I follow are is very positive. Like it's people who are encouraging. It's a lot of just like real life content. I really like uh, really like those nature videos. Like not the someone goes into the nature, but the like this wildlife cameras or the grizzly bear in the in the backyard <laughs> or uh, those kind of crazy nature shots. Uh, some entrepreneurial stuff, some podcasts that I like, some independent journalists who are like socially critical, but not recent. I feel like there's a strong difference between recent events, like people who just discuss recent events and people who discuss big topics and include recent events to to make a point. Mm-hmm. I feel th- there is a difference because discussing recent events doesn't really bring you anywhere. You always need to zoom out and see the bigger picture. There is nothing you're going to take away from taking apart every bad thing that is happening every day. You're going to take a step back. You're going to look at, okay, where does that fit into? Like politics, what ideology? what development in the bigger picture is happening. And then you put in each of those things. And I like people who do that. I really, I really enjoy that because that means I learn something and that makes me more willing to engage with those things. Uh, so, I mean, that's basically my Instagram. My LinkedIn is a little different. It's mainly to support other people and get like some encouraging content of, I don't know, content creators, mainly not even influencers. So, uh, like that's for me, but it took a long time to actually reach that. Like ten years ago, everything looked a lot different. I mean, I guess ten years ago was just starting with Instagram. Probably not even. Uh, but there it was like chaos, emotional chaos as well. They've they've come a long way. Yeah, I think with Instagram, it's nice that you can choose who you follow. And yes, you can on other um, social media as well. But with something like TikTok or YouTube, a lot of a lot of discovery is built on suggestions. And I wish that we had a little more agency to suggest what we're more interested in um, rather than them leading you down the rabbit hole of what they think you like because it's really like it it picks up on if you're angry or sad or if you have certain emotions and tries to reinforce that but maybe I am sad but I want to be happy and I would love it if you could I could ask you to show me happy content instead (laughs) that's actually that's that's a really good point because it was a very turning moment in how I saw those algorithms was when someone told me I don't know if that was before Google or maybe it was somewhere within Google. No, I think it was before Google. That someone told me that YouTube is actually not taking into account the upvotes you're giving. Oh, look, a dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, cute. Uh, so they, they actually don't take into account the, the upvotes and downvotes. They only take into account what you click on next. So all like... Wow. Only in the very early years, the algorithm involved it 
And I don't even know if it, they rolled that out completely or if that was just really the beginning and then they turned that off. But I didn't see that much connection between uh, people staying online and watching videos uh, when you suggest something they like or don't like. The only really important thing is what they click on next. Yes, it's the engagement. Exactly. It's hard because I, I really do think that technology is not necessarily optimized for the user. It's optimized for the, the user to spend money. Yeah, you're the product. Either you stay on and give information or you go and buy stuff. Yeah. I, I see why, right? Like how else would they grow as much as they grow? And there is a win-win to a certain degree. Yeah, I would love it if there were certain things that were not managed privately by tech companies, but were more utilities that are maintained, I don't know, by a government entity or by a community so that I could feel like my interests as a user were being preserved. You mean like a group of people who optimize for other people like them? Yes, like if the internet were not owned by, you know, the the fibers that connect the internet were not owned by telecommunication companies. Yeah. But maybe rather just owned by like a, a government or some kind of self-supporting or, or self-organization. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there have been a lot of attempts to do that, right? It's just probably really hard to read the critical mass of people for it to be self-sustaining. Yeah, it'd also probably be slow slow as heck. Oh, yeah, that as well. <laughs> I mean, many reasons why it would be at least a lot slower than other approaches. But I feel like content... Hmm. Hmm. It's tricky. I feel like a lot of platforms that, for example, podcasting platforms, they don't really, they don't really do any distribution. So you are... It's up to you to listen on what you want to, right? Like, listen to what you want to. Well, podcasting platforms probably operate on a model of, like, a subscription. So yeah. they do, they're probably, you know, neutral to whether or not your podcast gets listened to. But for social medias, they operate on a freemium model where they can advertise to you. So they're optimizing for your engagement. I mean, does does Apple Podcast optimize through subscription? Well, Apple Podcast is owned by Apple, and they're a hardware company. So they're just putting that out for free, basically. But they're advertising over it, right? So at least they have some incentive of having engagement. I don't know what their why they have a podcast app. <laughs> they actually are the biggest podcast app. I really enjoy it. I used to use Spotify, but I just found the Apple one easier to use. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think they're selling me anything on it. I haven't oh, okay, purchased okay. anything. So. I mean, I started with Apple Podcasts back in the days with the Daily and the TechCrunch podcast and... Bloomberg News, <laughs> something like that. I don't know. It's just big network productions. Uh, before, before being a podcaster was something I even knew existed. Uh, and look so, at you now. 
<laughs> Look at me now. Yeah. Nine episodes in. A lot has changed. Yeah. Uh, man, I love it. It's great. I can see myself doing that for the next, I don't know, maybe forever. So, I mean, because what I'm doing here is just really what I enjoy doing, right? It's uh, having conversation with people and I really get to, I explained that to, to a friend of mine I went to lunch with today. What I had an assumption but, about but didn't know was that I really can create this really sharp and intense conversations by inviting someone to have them with me on a podcast. Because the way how it usually goes, I mean, I feel like when we talk, it's usually like really set aside time and we just have like this hour long phone calls. But a lot of times it's just integrated into your day to day life, right? You might be sitting on a bike, you might be at home and doing laundry at the same time or stopping by at the computer or talking to someone else for a minute. And you lose a lot of depth through that. But by actually setting away the time, making it something official in your calendar, sitting down, turning on a camera, putting up a mic, having a bit of an introduction, you are just, your attention is just right on that. It's not on all the rest of your to-dos throughout the day. It's really on the conversation. You're listening, you're engaged, you rephrase, you reframe. And uh, it's, it's very enjoyable. And while I am lucky to have conversations like that in just the normal life as well, here I can actually like call them, like I, I can summon them in a way and really have them once a week, twice a week, if I want to allocate more time to it even more. That's really cool. I, I didn't think it would work that well. Uh, also, especially with people, I haven't had any conversations. Like episode number six, Georg Weber. We knew each other because we had each other on LinkedIn. We had similar friends. We were at the same school. But I remember exactly one sentence that we once said to each other and that was pretty much it's it. just one <laughs> it's just one <laughs> and uh he just started up starting a podcast and was like hell yeah take me i want to have a conversation and i had no idea what he was like what we were getting into and the conversation was a deep one from the first moment on and i think the far was my favorite one actually it was it was just such a cool episode we talked about so much cool stuff. I get to get to know a really cool person who thinks really deeply about life and business life and himself in it. That's really that. amazing. Yeah, you really proved it. You proved something to yourself. I yeah. guess people really are. People enjoy those types of conversations. It's really a matter of making them happen. Yeah. I've, Facilitating. I've gone really positive responses from people from people who are on but also just from people who, who stumbled over it in the internet and listened to it and were like so happy that something like that exists that they made the effort to send me a message and to oh, cool. words of encouragement yeah really cool so um, it's it's been going overwhelmingly great uh so definitely gonna keep doing that and uh, i'm inspired 
<laughs> I mean, can could really encourage you to do it as well. Like uh, whatever, how much time you have, right? For some people, they want to do high production value, a lot of preparation. Other people just want to have conversations, which I find is is very easy and brings a lot of joy. And all sorts of things, and especially when you start with something. You get the skill set of a podcaster, which means if you ever want to create something more elaborate, you you already know much better what you're getting yourself into. And that's worth a lot. There are so many cool formats. Uh, I don't know. Do you know Hardcore History? No, I, I, I think I've heard of it, but I haven't listened to it. Uh, it's from... Is it Gimlet? No, his name is Dan... Drop the name. Uh, yeah, Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin. Oh, that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, I think he used to write for a newspaper. Now he does this podcast called Hardcore History, which are like up to five, six hours episodes, sometimes several episodes on a topic. And uh, he just goes really, really deep. Like he prepares them for half a year. It's insane. I really like that about podcasts. It also makes me think of TikTok. It's it's like people don't, I think a lot of people start these channels or shows and they don't think that that many people will engage with them because it's so niche. But it, they end up having really large followings because they're very interesting and well-researched or the discussion is deep. Yeah. And um I guess you just don't really know who you're going to resonate with until you put it out there. Yeah. There's a there's another one I want to highlight at that note because I don't think enough people know it and he's doing a great job. Uh, it's called... Uh, it's not how to conquer the world. Man, I have to look that up, man. I'm, 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 drop, I'm dropping all that names now. How to take over the world. There you go. Oh. From ben Wilson. That's a powerful name. It is a powerful name. It has the coolest intro. I love I love the intro so much. But that guy is really cool. So Ben Wilson is the producer. He produces uh, My First Million, which is ah. my favorite business podcast. You've heard of it? I have heard of it. I'll listen to it. My First Million is really cool. It's just two guys, both successful founders, who sold their stuff. And now they're just analyzing other businesses and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. It's really, really cool. Sometimes they have really cool people on. And so Ben Wilson became the producer, I want to say like 18 months ago, 12 months ago. So he's mainly in the background. Sometimes he says something. But he also has his own podcast project. He's been doing that since uh, 2017, actually. Uh, and he does also kind of like history about people and so for example his first episode was about napoleon bonaparte and he did like two episodes about steve jobs then he did julius caesar i look listen to uh disney walt disney i think that's one of his best ones uh he did vladimir putin he did i don't know what else uh so many the road shields uh so and he just very, he has a cool approach to it. He doesn't lecture. It's it's not the kind of 
It's not kind of just throwing facts at you. He really brings it all together with his own thoughts and interpretations, and he uses all sorts of different sources. So he reads different books, different biographies, maybe even an autobiography, and then brings them all together and tries to compare them to other people and tries to highlight their values and principles, those kind of things. And he does a a really good job. And uh, obviously it takes a lot of time as we read several books and really make a lot of thoughts for each of those episodes. So he doesn't produce, I think he tried to produce them like every month or every other month, but it just takes a lot of time. But it's really cool. I can highly recommend them. They're dense, but they're really good. Yeah, I'll look out for that. I really do like biographical things. Yeah, no, you can definitely take a lot away from them. Wouldn't you like him? I would say start with maybe Steve Jobs or or Disney, Walt Disney. I don't know. The Napoleon one sounds interesting to me. Ooh, I've always yeah. been very interested in Napoleon. I didn't listen to that one yet. It's his first one. So obviously the first one is usually different than all the others. Uh, I'll review it for you. Perfect. Let me know. <laughs> but by the way, I remember the last time we... Heard from each other. You were just in a tech conference in in Vegas, right? Oh yeah, I went to CES at the beginning of January. What does CES stand for? Uh, Consumer Electronics Show. So I believe it's really one of the largest kind of technology conferences in the U.S. Could you give like an give like an overview so people so people can uh, imagine what you what you experienced there? Yeah, well, you know, I only experienced a slice of it. It's really big, so. The conference is about 100 to 150,000 people, uh, which is huge considering we were just locked in our homes for three years. Uh, it takes place in Las Vegas every year. And it, the cool thing about it for me is it's it's kind of historical. Like it's taken place since probably around the 60s. And it, it's where a lot of early, like some of the most pivotal technologies were debuted. Um, and it's supposed to be, I think, somewhat like futuristic in that maybe this isn't what we're going to have today or next year but there are a lot of demonstrations on what technology could be like in like 10 years um this was my first time going i would say for what from what i saw it seemed like there was a heavy focus on autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. so every major automaker i'd ever heard of had some kind of autonomous vehicle demo or electric car that they were trying to show off. And then there were a lot of companies I hadn't heard of. So it makes me think that there's probably a, a strong kind of startup or, you know, there are companies trying to make a name in a heavily competitive and saturated market. And then the other things that were popular were like AR and VR. I actually went to um, see the, at the racetrack, they actually had their first like autonomous vehicle like NASCAR type race. Oh, wow. Which was cool in theory. It was, they had advertised it all week and they were said that it was going to go to 190 miles per hour, which I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen. Um, But I think a major takeaway from my experience was there's a lot of over promising and under delivering. And I don't know if that's the case all the time, but Maybe that's just the what happens when you're trying to predict the future, right? There's there's going to be things that flop. But yeah, basically, I got there halfway through and the cars were still struggling to go at like 50 miles per hour. <laughs> um, and eventually one got over 130, I think. And that was cool. But I thought it was going to be like zoom, zoom. And they're, they're racing and passing each other 
without any um, human intervention. Um, and then I think one car ended up just kind of stopped in the middle of the racetrack. So what was mm. funny is this autonomous car was just sitting there and then the, like a team of 10 people came over and they were, they were dragging it off, which was, <laughs> it's just a funny image. The other <laughs> thing is, um, you know, Elon Musk's Hyperloop. Uh, yeah. He had invested in uh, building kind of the preliminary one in Las Vegas for the starting at the convention center. And it's supposed to be able to take you around the convention center, which is very large and then to other parts of Vegas. So we were excited to try out the loop um, and it was running, but it also had drivers. So I was like thinking that the way I had envisioned it, probably based on the way it was marketed, is that you would get into this autonomous Tesla and then it would go at like 100 miles per hour into this tunnel and then you'd get to where you need in like 20 seconds. Um, but the way it actually was, was there was a driver and it kind of took you very at a, like 30 miles per hour to the next stop, which is less efficient than maybe a subway or a bus or something that could fit maybe more than four people. But that's not to say it won't work in a few years. So it's just very interesting to, to see what could be and what actually is. Um, people talked a lot about chat GPT. During the conference, it was definitely the hottest topic. Um, Someone I met who ran an ad agency said that they were already using it to kind of get copy for like ad creatives and that it was performing better than some of their copywriters. Says a lot Uh, about their copywriters. (laughs) Perhaps, but you know, the point of writing good copy is to say something that communicates well and it, that is true. You know, it's clear. So does it need to be the most clever or the most flowery? I don't know, but, um, but overall, I really think it's a conference that, it, you know, if there's any interest in attending, you should attend because it's, um, you don't really even need to buy a ticket because there's so much going on off the convention center that, there, there's just people everywhere and they're congregating and they're having interesting conversations. There were many events that I just kind of walked into without any, no one checking. No, it's um, good to know if they keep it so open. I think it's just hard to contain over 100,000 people. I mean, yeah, that's You, you can't stop the ideas flowing. Yeah. How... What was your thought behind going there? Was it work-related or? Uh, I went for work. Uh, I would say that there are a lot of software industries that are represented there, even though I think traditionally it is kind of like a hardware show. Um, I think that it's just the, such a general conference that people want, like people just want to see what's going on and then with their peers and their industry. So work-wise, I thought it was pretty productive. I just, there were a lot of people from various companies present and they were all just wandering around and you could just kind of find them. I gotcha. So what was the, okay. I feel like one of the things that surprised you the most was how much they praised certain developments that actually are not as far or at least were a little disappointing during the demo. Was there anything that was positively surprising? 
Um, I went by a, a Sony booth where they're, they had really like the, the state of the art cameras that are used for movies. Ooh. And I was really impressed by how, well, traditionally a, a camera has the sensors within the camera, but they were able to, uh, disconnect that and put sensors maybe on like a vehicle or a person so that it would be able to capture movement and things very well. And I thought that was very cool. And also I learned that they're basically, you know, like how the, the best, well, really good computers or displays, TVs can show things in 4k. I think they were saying that they could shoot things now in 8k and beyond. And even if maybe the tech, the hardware, the, displays and tvs aren't ready for that they at least will have it in raw and many of these movies will be able to be uh, redone later on to be even better resolution which is fun i don't know i I really enjoy movies so yeah they had shown one of their examples was they had shot um the new top gun movie maverick Mm -hmm. on one of their newer cameras and they had these like very specific scenes where like they're shooting on one airplane of like airplane fight scenes and different combat things. And it was just very cool. And I remember watching that movie in the theater and being so mesmerized by it because of <laughs> the, you know, the advances that they've made since the last Top Gun movie. I gotcha. That, that's definitely exciting. And I, I can see how it is cut but, through all those yeah. different industries. Must there was so more. much more though. I really just saw a tiny, tiny bit of it. <laughs> I walked maybe for like a few hours, but it's very overwhelming. And there, I probably only saw less than 10% of the entire show because it's so big. So you saw autonomous vehicles, you saw some AR VR stuff, some discussions about large language models. And right. And there, there's a lot of niche things. I think there's probably incremental advances that are being made in all these different industries like the next generation of dishwashers but not being an insider to those industries i probably don't recognize the amazing things they're doing (laughs) yeah but that's cool so there's like very let's call them mundane technical tools as well at that conference so it's not just hardcore futuristic deep tech but it's really the things that actually concern us on a daily basis I th- yes, definitely. And I think for each of those industries, there are going to be people who are insiders who are interested in having those discussions. Ah, cool. So to actually get the people who are there from the sensation as well as all the niche people. Yes. Nice. Oh, that's really So exciting. there's kind of something for everyone. You know, if you knew nothing about any of these things and you just walked in, it'd be cool. And if you were deep inside a very specific field, you might be able to find new information about that field yeah really nice i will definitely i'll definitely put it into my calendar and see if i can check that out next year uh like just the tech conferences i've been to in vienna for example pioneers festival doesn't exist anymore it was once one of the bigger tech entrepreneurial conferences in europe that was really cool like just the speakers to talk to people get a bit of a sense who they are, what they do, and how they market themselves. And then uh, the last one I attended to, I think it was right before COVID hit, December 2019. That was, um, 
uh, we are developers. Hmm. Uh, you might know we are developers. They're quite big. They have the big conference in Amsterdam or Berlin, I remember. And then they had their special, I think that year it was cloud computing and big data on uh, in Vienna. That was really cool. I think it was cloud computing, blockchain, and big data. Uh, really cool. Really, really interesting. Attended a lot of workshops. I think it was about two or three days. Uh, like really, really interesting workshops of all kinds of verticals. And I saw some really cool speakers. Some of them I'm still following. Uh, Cassie, oh, it's really hard to pronounce her surname. Uh, she's the chief decision scientist at at Google. She's one of the biggest uh, LinkedIn data science influencers. Also does a lot of master classes these days. She's really cool. Uh, really, really down to earth approach about data science. Not the catastrophic apocalyptic. Um, AI kind of image, but uh, okay. Machine learning starts with those statistical models and then goes a bit further to decision trees and then you have some boosting and some bagging and make it even more complex, but then you have some neural nets, but really just takes all those things apart and makes them very approachable for people and usable for people and not just sensational. Uh, people like that. That was really cool. And also like I think someone flew a drone <laughs> A really cool drone, <laughs> like some some autonomous. Like there was one researcher, they were they were trying to solve some uh, autonomous driving issues, and then they just prototyped. I think that whole that whole talk was about prototyping, how they just tried to do this. I think it was some kind of object recognition, and they were like, okay, we don't have the budget to do that outside. Plus, in in Europe, it's very restrictive, so they can simulate that like smaller. In inside vehicles and just drove them through parkours and just simulated that. <laughs> it was really, really crazy stuff. Uh, but super, super technical. I feel like every other talk, they, they actually pulled up notebooks and <laughs> uh, showed you the code. <laughs> that was, uh, that definitely led a lot of people to leave the room. <laughs> But uh, I found it really, really fascinating to see those people just give you a code review. <laughs> was, oh my gosh. It was really cool. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, that, that, that was definitely fun. That was definitely fun to, to watch the enthusiasm people have about, about their code. Uh, so yeah, it was, that, was, that was so cool. That was like small conferences. Both of them were like in the... Uh, it's like the president's palace of, of Austria. There's like a big event part, like half, half quarter of it is like an event location. Really, really fancy. Wow, really what a old. cool venue. Yeah, like big red carpets, like ballrooms as the, the main event hall and just like really amazing statues and just stone staircases and dark wooden. And code uh, reviews. Halls. And code reviews and flying drones and little cars driving yeah it's a very interesting place to have a tech conference it's these two different eras yeah yeah totally yeah i mean obviously there are big there's stuff in like the big convention and event centers as well but those are usually just like a big hang hunger right like a big just a big hall uh, it's much harder to 
separate stuff. It's much harder to get like a like a show feeling. Uh, it's much harder to 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 have like a storytelling with the beginning and an end if everyone's just running around in a convention center and going from one booth to the next. So I feel like that's different approaches. Uh, definitely. CES, you said, right? Yeah, CES. Cool. Nice. Yeah, I so, think a good conference could have a mix of both, right? Like really good talks, the ability to actually meet interesting people, but also good demos, exhibitions. Yeah. Especially if you want people there, you you have to allow networking. I actually talked to a, to a lawyer friend of mine. He's a little older, like mid-end 30s, and he was really excited this year because in the last couple of years due to COVID, there were no big conferences and events for lawyers like he does big corporate law. So now all those events are happening again all over the world, and I think he spent his summer just going from one huge event to the next one, not to attend those conferences, but just to be there and meet clients because everyone just goes there. Like you're just like, ah, next week I'm going to Singapore to that conference. And I was just like, oh, cool. What's the conference about? And he just looks at me and he's like, that, that's not relevant. I know what people are going to be there. <laughs> just everyone uses it as a, as a, not excuse, but it's just this, this event that brings everyone there together. Right. It's like this yeah. one big occasion to meet the people from that area. And then you, gonna meet them all and make deals and sit together and talk and that's just worth so much and that aspect has always been just non-existing for me when i attended those conferences because i wasn't there to make business i wasn't there to make deals i was there to get inspired to learn stuff but uh, that's a that's a huge point for the organizers as well how do you actually enable deal making It's true. It, it does seem like that's a big draw. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people will pay a heavy ticket price. Yes. Just to be in the right room with the right person. Yeah. Plus, it's a nice expense. I think you can make you make your employees happy if you can send them there. <laughs> they can expense it over the company. It's not leisure time. It actually brings business, but it's also fun just not to be in the office and take Zoom calls. How's that? How's that been for you? Like now for what, one and a half years, two years, you've been fully remote? Um, well, I've been fully remote since like end of 2019, beginning oh, wow. of 2020. Um, and I think for my lifestyle, it's been pretty good, but I definitely do get lonely <laughs> being at home all the time. And the interaction you, you get from doing work on video calls is not the same as being around coworkers and meeting. Uh, but my company's been making it kind of fun. I, I've i gone on probably like four or five trips in the last year, just to different conferences. And we also do like a work from office week every now and then. And to be honest, in New York? I, uh, yeah, but there really isn't that much. Um, it's really like we gather every now and then in New York. Which I think is nice. I think that they're also, I like having some separation from work, right? It's easy to not have to have a physical workspace besides my home office. Like, describe that 
maybe for people who who mm. have never lived the office culture? I think it's really nice having coworkers that you get along with because it makes working easier. Having the ability to know their personalities, to understand, you know, what works for them and what doesn't. But I also think that having been in an office before, I felt like everyone knew each other too well. And then you start kind of relying on people for things. Um, like if you become friends, I, I didn't quite love having friends outside of work that I also hung out with after work because then it, it's like this mixing of two lives. And I also feel like a lot of drama happens when there's an office. And I think it's just inevitable that people get mad at each other or something happens. So it, I like this separation of having a fully remote work life. It, if I understand it correctly, what you're saying is when it's remote, business just constrains itself to being just business. And when I it's do prefer office, that. Yeah. It, 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 add, it is really a bigger part of your life. Like it extends into your friendships and extends into your social life and extends into the drama. Correct. Which now, after saying that, I kind of realize it's funny because we are friends from work originally. <laughs> I mean, when you were in San Diego. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, that that is true. Uh, the, your first couple of weeks at this week. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird to think back. It's been four and a half years since I oh, left wow. this week. Almost. It's like. September, end of August, 2018. It's so wild. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We know each other for quite a while. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, time flies, right? Did you think four and a half years ago that you would be living in Canada with a remote job? corporate life, going to big tech conferences? Um, you know, I really didn't know what what was in store for me. No. I also wasn't really, I had very little awareness of Canada <laughs> as a place. So probably not. But I did really enjoy working from in tech, I think, from the beginning. I think mm. that it, it is very inspiring. Um so maybe maybe that part, yeah. Do you miss the biomedical space at all? Oh, so I did do my bachelor's degree in neuroscience, which I think throughout school I really thought I would continue pursuing. But, uh, you know, I, I, did, I think part of it is that to continue in that career path, it does require some advanced education, like going to grad school or medical school. And I felt like there isn't, I don't think I necessarily was ready to continue going to school. And I I think that a lot of the intellectual parts that I enjoyed of it existed within tech. So I felt like I found this path that lets me continue doing the things I like um, I also was kind of nervous about the expenditures of going, continuing schooling. So yeah. this seemed like a, a nice thing. Yeah, no, I definitely get that. What, what surprised you the most from, let's say, your expectations the moment you stepped out of, of Brown and 
till now? Oh, I don't know. Some of it is negative. I think that the working world is so much more disillusioning than the academic world. I think that college was a lot more about learning why things are interesting and why they should be pursued. And the working world is so much more about how do we find applications for what we've built or how do we drive profits? It's just so practical and it's not necessarily um, optimizing for, I think, intellectual pursuit or goodness. It's more about trying to meet the key objectives for this quarter. And that was very jarring, I think, for me stepping outside of school. Do you think, I don't know, what, what's your experience been having been both, you know, in corporate settings and in school a lot? Yeah, I definitely want to say that 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 was jarring for me to experience as well. Uh Yeah, I think for me it really it really opened my eyes at Google. I think that was like all the other experiences since were my expectations and I, I was just dis- disillusioned enough that the experiences were much more positive afterwards because there I was just like, ooh, I mean, the way Google markets themselves is, there it is, fun, great place to be, <laughs> yeah. roam around freely and do cool stuff and have your 20% projects and work on a better world. And then... Oh, right, the 20% projects. Yes, the, the 20% projects that uh, the first person I asked about there, what they are about, said, oh, the 20% projects. Yet a more 20% on top of your 100%. <laughs> I was just like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> all right, sounding great. <laughs> uh, no, uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to dump on Google here. Uh, I'm sure there is so much more to it, but like the business side I saw in Google Business, Google Ads, it's it's not the same. Also, being in, in Europe and not in Mountain View is definitely also makes a difference. Uh, it was just, it was just very very metric driven as you as you described it uh, the, the business side they just try to force this non salesy non very uncorporate culture into how do we squeeze money out of uh, of our um, uh, the, the people using google ads so, so uh, that that was uh, that was a bit dampening my my hopes for as you said, the intellectual pursuit, the trying out new stuff, that using your skills for something you stand behind that is aligned with your ethos. Uh, so that that was definitely a wake-up call that I'm really happy that I got. Like if I would be 25 years old and still run around with uh, the image in my head that all the companies or that there are the, the big tech companies are out there to make the world a better place, that that is quite a disil- uh, an illusion that no one should hold because that's just not true. I mean, there are teams and there are parts within big tech that are not revenue driven that make great products to solve a problem. But that's literally that company doing charity. Like, 
that that is charity and you're seeing exactly those business units right now being cut down like a lot of that has gotten lost in the last couple of weeks when google microsoft and facebook uh, whoever else cut down business units they definitely cut down people in in projects that don't make any revenue because it's not driving ads it's not driving subscription it's just doing something cool to help people um, that's that's not in the interest of your shareholders or maybe it's part of a long-term strategy to drive growth but generally uh, from quarter to quarter it's just not there was definitely a realization I'm glad I made but it was hard like that that really hit me and took a year or two to process and some of those things I still have to to process because I don't want to get cynical, right? I don't right. want to walk out there and be like, "Oh, all companies are just like that," and you're just gonna gonna be exploited as a worker, and you're never gonna find happiness uh, because that's not true either. Yeah. <laughs> like you. No, I, I think it's a really important lesson to learn as a young person, though. That you know, this is how the world operates. And you can choose how you want to exist within it. Yes. Um, you know, as a student, I just had no idea that this existed. And it's important to see that and to understand that reality. Because, it, yeah, there are companies that are doing good things, but it's not their objective necessarily. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's part of it, but they're also trying to survive. And to survive, they need customers. That yeah. and they need to generate profit, and that's how they maintain their employees, who also yeah. are going to choose what's best for them. Yeah. So it is very much a transactional system, but there are probably ways to, you know, do good within it, or maybe there, there are smart young people who can think of how to <laughs> restructure capitalism. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all of that happening, and much more. Uh, but uh, like. My realization, or at least my current standpoint, is the vast majority of business and workplaces out there do business and they require you to do business. The goal of business is to do profit, make profit, keep the ship afloat. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. Like, it's, it's, it's very natural that it's that way. Um, I will participate or am already participating in in that mechanism in in some form but i want to be i want to have enough freedom to uh, select how much i i really want to but yeah um poo. quite an array of topics we talked about yeah any True. any last words for today no, just that this was really fun. And if and when I have a podcast started, I would like to invite you as a guest. Oh, I would love that. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm rooting for that you're going to put your new microphone to use soon. Yeah, it really, it, it's, it really needs to be used or else it'll <laughs> yeah, be sitting in a corner gathering dust. I totally know what you mean though. When I bought mine, I think it was seven months before I recorded the first episode. And then it took another nine months to record the second episode. So there is, there is definitely some time in between. So don't worry about that. 
Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, that was fun. Well, then let's call it a day. Thanks, everybody. And hear you soon. Bye.